0: This is Popular Front, a podcast focused on the niche details of modern warfare and underreported conflict with me, Jake Hanrahan. Today we're speaking to journalist James Pogue. He's going to be speaking to us about the deadly situation in South Africa. There have been open battles in the streets due to the former president, Jacob Zuma, being sent to prison on corruption charges. Over 300 people have been killed. We're going to speak to James, who has done extensive reporting uh, in South Africa, specifically around groups with armed militias and the like. If you like what we're doing here at Popular Front, please consider supporting us. Keep us going at patreon.com slash popular front. Let's start with what is actually happening right now in South Africa. Last I read, I think there's over a hundred people who've been killed in, you know, open street clashes. It's like urban warfare. From some of the videos I've seen, it looks like that. What the hell is going on? I understand it's something to do with Zuma, like something to do with this one, that one, like all sorts is going on. Maybe maybe just give us, you know, an idea of why this is happening right now.
1: There's an official version of what's going on, Mm. uh, which keeps changing, uh, that the government has been... I mean, to put it kindly, it seems like they're trying on explanations for size uh, and nothing seems to be sticking. Um, So just to sort of, to give people a picture if they haven't been following the actual measurable events, there's a grab bag of chaos that I can describe. Things kicked off when uh, Jacob Zuma, the former president, was sentenced to 15 months in prison uh, for defying an order by the South African Constitutional Court to um, appear before this commission that was investigating corruption during his tenure uh, called the Zondo Commission. And Basically, like this created a showdown in South Africa and different people describe the showdown as between different groups. But the easiest way to look at it is actually as a showdown within the governing ANC party, which has governed South Africa since uh, the beginning of democracy. And so roughly speaking, there was a Zuma wing and a sort of more proper minded and supposedly reformist wing headed by the president Cyril Ramaphosa. Um, And when Zuma went to prison, uh, which was to some people a surprise, some people thought he wasn't going to turn himself in. Uh, When Zuma went to prison um, and was kind of surrendered himself at his lavish palace surrounded by Zulu warriors in traditional attire and all this stuff, it was a big thing. Quickly, things developed that some people began to describe as an attempt at insurrection, um, and so, kind of the kickoff point for for that version of events was when the N three motorway between Johannesburg and Durban, which is uh, Africa's biggest port, um, and Johannesburg is of course the kind of financial uh, and economic capital of South Africa, uh, the N three motorway was cut uh, deliberately, it seems by. Um, The burning of, I think, thirty nine trucks and then stuff started to spiral uh, very, very quickly. Dermot port was shut down. Uh, Pharmaceutical warehouses were destroyed. Um, Lots of logistics and transportation nodes were attacked, possibly in coordinated fashion. Um, And then looting broke out. And the looting was concentrated especially in the province of KwaZulu-Natal, which is uh, where Jacob Zuma is from. It's the kind of traditional homeland of the Zulu people. Uh, And Zuma is by far the most significant Zulu figure uh, to emerge within the ANC coalition. it broke out in KZN, KwaZulu Natal, and then it spread to Tang, the province where Johannesburg is, uh, to Soweto, to townships, um, and this became a much more sort of disorganized and chaotic moment. Where uh, the big thing was that malls were looted um, around Haoteng and and the environs of Durban, uh, and at some point during all this, and you have to kind of forgive me because I'm not sure of the dates. Uh, but at some point during the looting, um, there a, a big, big presence of kind of white and Indian militias began taking over the streets of white and Indian areas, uh, particularly uh, kind of in the region around Durban, between there and Peter Meritsburg. Um And this set off probably the biggest and the biggest underreported thing that happened in the chaos of South Africa the last few weeks, when some reports I've read are like 39 people were murdered by white and Indian militias, usually without much, uh, kind of hesitation or ado. A lot of black people were pulled out of cars, cars were burned. Mm -hmm. Um, and this has set off a very, very deep rage. And like, if you go on South African Twitter right now, I mean, the, the area where a lot of people were killed was called Phoenix, which is a historically Indian area. Um, and, It's The talk is really brutal. The talk of civil war, the talk of inter-ethnic violence is very, very serious. Uh, So I know that's a lot of information, but that's a kind of quick rundown of the chaos such as we've seen it. Um, And then we can go into what's really happening, what the government story is. All of that as we get going, I guess.
0: Yeah, well, one thing um, which is hazy to me, I know you said there's like different militias kind of coming out now. But these videos where there's open combat in the street, people are firing. There's some like insane footage where guys are just getting dropped, like getting shot dead in the street. And then other guys are like on the corner, carry on, just kind of firing. Who? who, What is this? Are these like government-affiliated groups, or is it just general chaos? Like, how organized is all of this?
1: Well, so that's the great question, right? And the government has kind of, you know, as of we're as of our talking right now, and this may change. The government first um, kind of came out with this phrase that what was happening was a quote-unquote ethnic mobilization, Uh, and the implication of that is very, very live and intense in South Africa. Uh, The implication of it was that it was basically a move by uh, what are often called Zulu chauvinists, um, which is kind of polite term for some of the tendencies within hardcore Zulu politics, Uh, but Zulu chauvinists to basically defend one of their own in the form of Jacob Zuma. Uh, That got a lot of pushback and it just wasn't borne out by the events on the streets. then they began to talk about what they called an insurrection against South African democracy, uh, and that was something that has you know th- that's something that they at least have enough evidence for to have arrested some people. Um, and so we can kind of get into what these factions are and and try to piece apart what the factional infighting in the ANC is. Uh, it may it involves a little history, but basically the ANC is bitterly divided between. A group that is more or less loyal to Zuma, but to some degree, simply loyal to their own pocketbooks and political patronage, mm. uh, that it goes by the name the R.E.T. faction, which stands for uh, quote-unquote radical economic transfer uh, transformation. Um, and R.E.T. is kind of representative of what used to be the left of the ANC, um, you know, which is historically backed by communists, trade unions, um, kind of radicals who, some of them have broken off. Some of them have become wildly corrupt and basically mafia figures. Uh, some of them like Zuma are sort of like populist fire brands who are also very corrupt, who have kind of presented themselves as tribunes of the people. Um, but this group, uh, and you can look at it, uh, the ANC's Suspended Secretary General uh, Ace Mahashule is kind of the big figure, uh, perhaps almost as big as Zuma. Uh, and then you have this kind of collection of weirdos and jokers um, from this guy, Carl Niehaus, who uh, is, I mean, well known for having faked his mother's death to try to like get out of a some kind of tax fraud thing or something. I'm not exactly sure what he did, but he did fake his mother's death. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, this guy Tulani Domo. Lomo, excuse me, uh, who was uh, kind of Jacob Zuma's personal spy master who did this kind of ran this extra legal spy ring for Zuma's personal benefit and was sort of like uh, a kind of nefarious figure in the earlier administration. Um, But to give a picture, uh, Carl Niehaus is actually interesting because he was or until recently, he was the... um, spokesperson for, um, the MK veterans association, uh, which MK, uh, was translation, uh, spear of the nation. It was the armed wing of the ANC and the government has directly accused, uh, MK veteran groups and kind of renegade kind of like still operating MK bands of basically like coordinating this. Like, and so they've presented evidence in the form of like WhatsApp chats and things that, Groups like MK, um, who are still radical and perhaps loyal to Zuma, um, and who are often like trace their uh, dissonance with the current ANC government back to all the way back to when you know they wanted to end the war or end the the anti apartheid struggle by marching as an army into Pretoria and basically taking over, you know, and so a lot of them are still angry about 1994, uh, which is something you don't hear a lot about in the American, you know, particularly the American media. I'm not sure about the British media, but in the American media, we often think of South Africa as a place where, uh, you know, nonviolent struggle happily ended um, in a sort of Gandhi-like way with the emergence and a flowering of democracy. That didn't really happen. Um, And the ANC inherited a legacy of politicized gangs, of factional militias, of tribal divisions. um, And all of these are still present. All of these are still uh, present very much within the ANC itself, to say nothing of the rest of South Africa. Um, and so I don't think there's that much doubt that there was some level of organized sabotage and organized violence. Um, the government is, seems to maybe be overplaying how much that was, uh, because in particular, by the time you got to looting in Haoteng, uh It was a lot of people. There's literally no doubt whatsoever that most of the looting was done by people who were simply desperate and hungry um, in a place where COVID has hit South Africa, you know, probably harder than almost any country of its size in the world. Um, And the lockdowns have been very severe. People get arrested for, like, drinking alcohol, for smoking cigarettes. um, And they had just cut... Uh, I think in April, they had just cut this sort of supplementary payment that was keeping a lot of people alive. Like uh, literally a lot of people started to starve uh, in May and June and go to bed hungry and things like this. And so by the time you got to Tang, if you saw organized violence, it was gang violence. It wasn't wasn't some organized civil war. Um, That wasn't necessarily true everywhere. It's a little murky. Um, And then to make it even more complicated, You know, a lot of these particularly white communities have, you know, I mean, if they were black, you'd call it a gang. They have their own kind of we protect our neighborhood. We protect our turf organized groups, you know, with with AR pattern rifles, with AKs, with body armor, with night vision, all the stuff. Right. And these guys were out in the street. Um, I don't know if it's even going to ever be possible to get a picture of how many people were killed in violence between black looters, accused black looters, between Indians, between whites. It's going to be tough to ever get a picture of that. Um, but there was definitely some, and we're already seeing arrests. We're already seeing, you know, video reports and things like that.
0: Right. Sounds very, very dodgy. Um, what's the what's the current situation now? I, I understand things kind of calm down a little bit in terms of the open combat. Um, but what's going on at the
1: moment? Well, so this might be a good moment to kind of delve into the divisions in the ANC, because what well so to give a quick picture and then and then we'll do that um, as far as I know, as of when I checked this morning, I think three hundred and thirty nine people have been killed. Hmm. Uh, the roads particularly, you know, the N3 and the N2, the big motorways, uh, those are open again. Um, They opened with a lot of fanfare, uh, you know, big convoys of trucks. uh, And, um, you know, Durban's port is open. Uh, The stuff that is going to be really, really tricky uh, and that is going to impact people in ways that don't make the news is, you know, the pharmaceutical distribution warehouses in KZN are gone. Like they were burned. Um, uh, almost all of, um, the chain, uh, pharmacies in Durban, or, I, I mean, I don't want to say this, this is something I read. I'm not hundred percent sure this is true. Uh, but I read a report that like chain pharmacies in Durban had been looted and targeted. Uh, and so there's very few pharmacies around, uh, food prices are of course going to skyrocket in a place where, again, People think of South Africa as a developed economy. It is in certain ways, but it is not for at least 50 percent of the population who live in absolutely abject poverty of the kind that you would associate with anywhere else in, in sub-Saharan Africa um, and perhaps worse in some cases. Um, and so the kind of the logistical and the um, kind of like health and simple like subsistence level needs of people in uh places like Soweto, um, which is often considered a middle-class place, but has uh, outlying areas that are desperately poor shantytowns, those are places that are going to be really hit hard. Um, And those are places where the unseen effects of this are going to go on for a long time. Um, As far as the political situation, we're probably now going to see a real reckoning in the ANC and a kind of we're already seeing to some degree um a, a an emerging power struggle that is gonna have to come to a head. And that, you know, it's not necessarily certain that South African democracy will survive, to be honest.
0: It's that bad, yeah, that's serious.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, I think I think this is a moment for people who and I don't I don't mean your listeners who are often quite up on this stuff, but This is a moment for the international community to really take stock of what's happened and failed in South Africa and to possibly get past this idea that, you know, people loved to make Zuma into this buffoon villain who ruined South African democracy. And I'm the last person on Earth who's going to get up here and defend Jacob Zuma. But the problems are not Unique to him, Um, and the problems of a single party state that has been a single party state since its founding, uh, that is run by a party that has not, by any means, managed to transition from being a liberation movement to a government, uh, go back all the way to 1994. They go back even farther. I mean, they go back. They go back to when the ANC was bitterly divided between. I mean, I don't want to go too far with this because I'm not an expert on it. But, you know, the ANC was divided even on how to end apartheid. Right. And there were a lot of people who are still angry about the fact that, you know, this, you know, Marxist inflected egalitarian um, group that championed wealth redistribution uh, basically accepted a negotiated surrender from the apartheid government uh, that kept in place the, not the political structure of the country, but it kept in, st- in place the basic divisions of capital and the power of, of white money in the society. Uh, it allowed tons and tons of people uh, on both sides in fairness, but tons and tons of people who had done terrible things to get off without retribution. Um, and, you know, it papered over tribal divisions. Uh, the ANC is, has often Kind of presented itself to the world as a non tribal organization, but you know, back before the end of apartheid, people called it the Hosa Nosa, Hosa Nostra, sorry, like because it was the kind of the Hosa Mafia. Um, and you know, it fought a brutal, brutal internal war with um the Zulu Inkata Freedom Party, uh, which had its own problems. Um, but all of this stuff began long ago, uh, and It, you know, when Thabo Mbeki uh, kind of designed the economic reforms that came after the end of apartheid, uh, they quickly reshaped South Africa into this kind of, you know, classic IMF friendly model of of an emerging emerging economy instead of the quote-unquote radical economic transformation that a lot of people were hoping for, instead of this kind of egalitarian uplift. Um, And This gets to the really tricky parts of all this, which is that when that happened, um, quote unquote, wealth redistribution towards the black majority uh, was gonna be conducted by this program called Black Economic Empowerment, right? And BEE was a nice name for something that was basically I'm going to get in trouble for saying this, but honestly, it's kind of true. It was basically institutionalized um, a kind of institutionalized form of like how the East Bloc nations like sold off their assets and created a, like a class of state linked billionaires mm. um, because what you did. And so Ramaphosa, who was the chief, he was now the president of South Africa, was the chief negotiator uh, with the National Party um, in the talks that basically led to the end of apartheid. He was he was the voice of Mandela, who was by that point, to some degree, largely a spiritual figurehead. And, and you know, a guy who was liaising with the international community and providing moral support. Um, Ramaphosa was the chief negotiator and Ramaphosa, who um, was also the chief beneficiary of a system that basically would allow Pretty well connected people, generally ANC figures, to get what were essentially free shares of companies. So Ramaposa was friends with this mining executive, um, this guy, Manel, uh, who you know he would like fly fish with and stuff. and in you know Manel talks about this, he he basically loaned Ramaposa. of companies, and then Ramaphosa would get a seat on the board, and he would be expected to pay back these wildly valuable shares with dividends from the company that he was now working for, right? And so he's on the boards of all these places. He owns every McDonald's franchise in South Africa, and it's because of his political connections. Um, And so this was kind of institutionalized corruption. (laughs) That's maybe a strong word for it, but it was institutionalized unfairness that elevated a number of senior ANC figures very, very quickly to great wealth and status um, and kind of allowed them to say, look, like we have an emerging black class of, of, you know, some of them are billionaires um, and South Africa is moving along uh, very quickly. And it's all so thrilling and we have democracy. Uh, But you were institutionalizing a party where political connections equaled money um, and where You know, you had all of these factions. Many of them were still armed, uh, legally or non-legally. You had all these competing personalities. You had all these competing ethnic divisions. And it all had to take place behind closed doors, you know, because elections in South Africa basically just confirm the ANC's power, right? And there's always noise every time there's a presidential election. Oh, no, is the ANC going to lose seats? Is the ANC going to do this? But they always retain power, right? And so South Africa is you know, there, there's no other way to describe it. It is a single party state. You can call it a democracy too, but it is not a multi-party democracy. And mm-hmm. that has had wide ranging implications. Um, and it's going to kind of forever, um, unless something changes. And we may be seeing the ANC about to split. Um, that's something that a lot of people are talking about. Uh, however, it's something people have talked about for years. And, you know, they may also just be so entrenched that, this kind of infighting is going to run the country entirely into the ground. Um, but that's a long way of saying that I, I think often um, <clears throat> the Western media in particular has portrayed the current president, Ramaphosa, as this kind of saintly figure who's going to come in and try to clean things up. And I think the biggest lesson to take from this is that that job might be beyond him, and he also may not have as much credibility within South Africa as people like to portray.
0: Yeah, um, doesn't sound good. It sounds like if there was ever a time for them to split, as you said, it would probably be now. Um, I, I know I know. there's been like, obviously, all, the, all of these street clashes and a lot of it is affiliated with, you know, this wing of the government, that wing of the government. Um, but what, what have the government actually done to try and stop these clashes, like,
1: if anything? Well, so even that is a little confusing because, mm. um, you know, first... They mobilized a bunch of police um, who, you know, I mean, we don't have to go too far into the the saps, the South African police service, but they, you know, they arbitrarily arbitrarily arrested tons of people, um, you know, their shootings. Uh, the police are themselves often corrupt. There are videos of the police themselves looting. Um, and so then they called up the army um, and the the South African National Defense Force. uh was supposed to provide more or less on the spot twenty five thousand people. Um, again, as of this recording, I can't say that's not going to happen. Um, but there's a lot of really credible questions uh, raised by you know like former generals and and people in the know who are like they don't actually have the operational capacity to do that. Um, and so I'm not actually sure if that full mobilization that they claimed did take place. Um, But the army, the army mobilization is, I think, a really key thing to note here because it looks like, hey, the government said we're bringing in the army and then they bring in the army and things calm down. all's well and good. Um, That's not, at least according to people I've talked to, um, that's not how it was seen on the street. Um, The army at the very first deployment of the army actually brought more people out onto the street because they felt... Um, even people who were not, you know, Zuma loyalists, who weren't Zulu, uh, you know, none of these things that people are throwing at all these uh, all these looters as accusations. These are people who were just furious that the state would bring in the army against poor people who were desperately looting, um, and it brought out a lot of angry people who hadn't been looting before. Um, I don't have any numbers on that. That's just anecdotal things that people told me but it tracks and it tracks well with the fact that um you know the kind of radical firebrand outside of the ANC who used to be the youth the ANC's uh youth wing leader uh Julius Malema uh he repeatedly warned the the government like hey don't bring in the army don't bring in the army um and you know even generals uh who are retired and you know um at least one of whom I think is pretty well respected. I'm not an expert on South African ex generals, but uh, one former MK commander uh, was really, really angry about this, and he was like, "This is not the role of the South African Army to settle an intra party dispute. This is this is an absolute abuse of state power, an absolute abuse of the defense forces of a nation. Because what you're doing is using this this army to basically settle a political score and." I I repeat that because I think that's how a lot of people on the street interpreted it. Um, And I think that it's going to help to build, again, a lot of anger against um, a a Ramaphosa figure who is loathed by many poor people, Um, like truly, truly loathed by um, a certain wing of kind of um, radical minded black South African hates Ramaposa and blames him for massacres. Um, he was on the board of a mining company where a, a huge massacre of strikers took place um, where people were, you know, like killed in mine shafts and like shot in crevices. And, you know, they blamed it on accidental fire at first and stuff. Uh, Ramaphosa was on the board for that. And people remember that. And people think of this as kind of, not all people, but a lot of people think of this as a kind of recapitulation of Ramaphosa's basic disregard for poor people and disregard for the voice of the streets.
0: So a lot of anger directed towards this guy.
1: Yeah. And it's hard to know exactly what form that will take, whether it'll take the form of, you know, kind of further violence. Um, It seems unlikely, at least for the moment. Um, I think probably it will take um, the more immediate form of further disillusion with South African politics. And so, you know, throughout the history of South African democracy um, uh, participation in elections, uh, voter turnout has been falling. Um, and, you know, increasingly people view it as a kind of game. Um, again, a game largely played within the kind of opaque world of the ANC and um, and I mean, this is this is speculation that goes a little goes a little far beyond um, what might happen anytime soon. But um, Ramaphosa, who again tries to portray himself as this kind of you know reformer with clean hands, his vice president, the vice president he appointed in I think 2018, uh, David Mubuza, was like is one of the most corrupt people in South Africa. Um, there's a New York Times. Story from, yeah, again, 2018 that, you know, describes how in the province that he governed, he used to be the education minister there and like mobilized teachers to bring himself further into power. Um, 20 ANC officials over the course of just a few short years were murdered, um, often like just after they had spoken out about corruption um, and he kind of used this massive patronage network to build a a kind of power base of um, ANC voting delegates that made his pretty small province into a bigger force within ANC politics than Hauteng, which is, um, you know, the, the most economically powerful and I think the most populous province in South Africa. I may be wrong about that. Um, and so this guy... This guy used that power and like a nakedly corrupt uh, system of more or less complete patronage, like dedicated to his sole person to become vice president of South Africa. And every vice president who has served under an ANC president has gone on to then run the state. And so, like, (laughs) you know, the, the crazy question about like whether Ramaphosa can maintain his legitimacy and at least enough power to effectively govern is like the people waiting behind him are not great.
0: Yeah. It's going to be, you know, it doesn't sound like there's anyone coming to save anybody. You know what I mean? Um, you were talking about these, these militias at the start. So you said there's like kind of an alliance or something between like white militias and Indian militias. What, what is that? What's going on there? Tell us a bit more.
1: A couple of things with that. Um, as far as the alliances go, my direct knowledge is limited to the fact that I've seen white guys and Indian guys patrolling together, um, and that I've heard, you know, reports from uh, from my fixer um, that that was happening. Um, and I think he saw it. Uh, it's kind of interesting because that area, of Phoenix, um, I I hadn't really known much about. You know, I I didn't really place the name when I first started hearing about these killings, uh, but it turned out that actually I had gone through there because someone I knew had actually worked in an Indian owned shop there. And that uh, is maybe indicative. Um, You know, he's pretty typically minded South African guy. um, And the just absolute vitriol that he said to me about Indian people uh, was was pretty shocking. Um, and, uh, it's a reflection of the fact that there's, you know, a lot of black people think that Indians are in South Africa are very, very racist towards them. And very, very, um, you often hear the word sort of like high-handed things like that. Um, and there's a lot of resentment about that. Um, and basically what happened at least there, as far as I can tell is that Indians did something that. I, you know, you've long heard about whites planning to do and that I know, you know, as I've talked to you about, I know quite a lot about sort of white logistical planning for civil unrest and how they deploy those militias. And, and we can get into that, too. Um, but it seems that the Indians had either been doing this for a long time or were taking a, a, a bit from the white playbook. Uh, and they blockaded the borders of the various areas. And anyone who kind of was unlucky enough to get in there, um, I saw a a kind of long interview with a woman who was dragged from her car, um, you know, put on the ground, and she heard them, she was screaming, and she heard them uh, kind of talking about whether or not to kill her. Um, She claimed uh, that she had you know, just bought this car and she had saved up a lot for it uh, and that it, you know, she put her whole life savings into it. And they, they had her watches, they burned it. Um, and so, you know, and that was just one report from someone who survived, right? Yeah. Uh, and so the South African police minister went there and talked rather tough, but, and I think a few people have already been arrested. Um, I'm not sure if anyone's been charged with murder, um, but this is something that, You know, is neither unique to that area nor is going to go away or be diminished anytime soon in South Africa. If anything, uh, this kind of like neighborhood or suburb by suburb uh, militarization, essentially. I mean, lots of suburbs in South Africa just have essentially, you know, their own mini military to police their borders in in events like this. And this is only going to drive that further. Um, it was already something that, you know, w- would produce periodic killings and and extrajudicial attacks and and lots and lots of racial tensions. And that it's something the government was trying to tackle. This is a massive, massive step back for that. It's, it's going to give nothing but greater impetus to further arm South African society. Um And of course, the fact that I I forgot to mention this, of course, the fact that lots of arms were looted during this time, is going to give further impetus to that. Um, There's an ammunition factory. I forget how many rounds, but I think five million rounds. Um, I may have a decimal point wrong on that, Um, but millions of rounds were looted from from an arms depot. Um, And it's just going to drive the society that's already essentially at war with itself further down that road. So what is
0: going on then with these kind of white militias? What is the mobilization looking like? Because obviously we, you know, we spoke before and they're armed to the teeth. They're ready to go. They basically want their, they want a war to break out from what I gathered. Um, this is surely their moment in in a very dark way, but that, that must be what they're seeing.
1: Well, so, I mean, people who listen to this bef- or listen to the earlier interview, probably already heard some of this, but, um, it's kind of interesting, the big white militia that I was sort of traveling around with and reporting on um, a couple of years ago, it's crazy to me how similar this event was to the plans that they had already had. So they have these plans that were, you know, in theory designed by a prophet named Cedar Van Dredsburg in the early 20th century who predicted a, a civil war between the races and that a kind of reassertion of a white free state in South Africa. And they, they've been planning for that for a long time. Um, but, you know, what what one thing that, you know, I'll say on your podcast that I wouldn't say on the news news that, that kind of struck me was that like they have contacts in South African intelligence. Right. Um, and they know things, <clears throat> excuse me, they know things, you know, via some means that, that I'm not always sure how they get their information. And it almost seems to me like the eerie similarities might be because there was some level of insurrection planning done by some people within the South African government and security services, and they had been slipping those plans or somehow the white militias became aware of that because it is it is kind of to point by point, creepily similar, um, at least for the to the plans of some white militias. And the odd thing is that the white militias didn't make a lot of noise during all this. Um, and I think that is largely because white communities were mostly untouched. Um, and following from that, white communities were mostly untouched because white communities have been, in large part, mobilized for a long time. Um, and, you know, I'm thinking of some areas that I've been... Uh, that were pretty near uh, some areas where violence broke out, particularly in Haotang. And, you know, <laughs> good job on those leaders for avoiding those areas, because like I've seen the, the people who are involved with that and they are hardcore. And like many of them will talk to you directly about people they have killed. Um, and these are people who grew up, you know, after the violence at the end of apartheid, who never served in the South African army. They just grew up in this zone of we defend our communities and we've been armed since we were kids um and so i think that in terms of like the kind of sexy big noise kind of moves of like oh this is the time for whites to retreat to the desert oh this is the time you know where we're going to actually like launch an uprising and and reclaim white power or you know try to try to carve out some some free province of South Africa as a redoubt and white homeland. I don't think that that would be necessarily set off too, too much by these recent events. Uh, If only because a lot of whites weren't really that touched by it. They're very scared. um, And they're very, you know, it confirms a lot of what they've long been saying, and it's going to drive very, very certainly, it's going to drive lots of whites further into the kind of, Soft white nationalist mindset that now grips a lot of people who in earlier years would have been considered South African liberals, but have looked on uh, with increasingly increasing alarm and like increasing kind of white identification uh, as South Africa's gotten more violent, as democracy continues not to work, and have started saying, Hey, we're going to take care of our lives, our networks, our people on our own. Um, And I, you know, I've talked to a couple of Anglophones uh, who are traditionally, you know, sort of far less white nationalist, at least in their public presentation, uh, than the Afrikaner community. And it is striking to see how, you could call it casual racism. You could call it a certain level of realism about like their people with stuff and money and nice homes in a nice cars in a increasingly violent society. Uh, But where they have increasingly started to talk like, hey, we're a white community under threat. And we as whites must think about how to forge a white future on the Southern tip of Africa. And I think people always thought like that, but it's become much more unavoidable to hear people talking like that. Um, I remember, this was a couple of years ago, but I remember uh, Ryan Mallon, <clears throat> who is super famous for writing this book, uh, A Traitor's Heart, which is sort of like this kind of grand document of, of an Afrikaner who was trying to be a liberal and trying to believe in a diverse South Africa. And he called himself a traitor because he was a traitor to his you know governing Afrikaner ideology. And he's writing op-eds where he talks about feeling like Anne Frank. Uh, he talks about feeling like there's a looming Holocaust. Um, and th- that to me was really striking. Um, you know, like this is a guy who made his name as what in South Africa is called a liberal, which is basically a white person who believes in diversity. And I think if you, I mean, I don't, I don't know the guy, but judging from his op-eds, I think if you looked in his heart of hearts, he's starting to think like, well, white people got to do for white people. And that's, that's a really alarming change. Um, and it's happened pretty quickly. I mean, it happened largely, you know, it started with the land question and this is going to really, really drive it forward.
0: And what about on the other side of things? So like, obviously there, there's a lot of black people are fighting um, right now within all of these clashes. Um, there must be people kind of forming their own militias on that side. No.
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, I mean, But, like, I mean, white people have militias, black people have gangs, right? That's how people talk about it. And, like, it's kind of, it's a silly shorthand that journalists, like, seem to, like, never-endingly repeat. Um, But so, you know, what is is a gang and what is a militia? Um, It's frequently just the difference between, like, what color skin the person has when they join it. Um, But so you know, they're particularly like South African black life is run through with what if white people had them would be called militias. And this is stuff, I mean, from anything like, you know, organized taxi groups, which are extremely powerful and very, very like armed and militant in South Africa. Um, and so like, for example, one of the, one of the guys who, um, who is alleged to have helped organize this this insurrection was forced by the taxi union to tour um some of the looting damage and like was basically like extorted to go there because he was scared of them um and it, there's like there are like videos of it he looked really really uncomfortable um and so the taxi drivers for example uh were major figures in actually blocking a lot of the looting like they organized themselves into an armed group that stopped people from uh from looting certain areas um so the taxi drivers are one uh there are these people called zamazamas who are basically like uh ad hoc gold miners um and that's a brutal crazy world of people who go down in abandoned mine shafts for months and months and months uh to look for the scraps from shut down mines and it's incredibly dangerous and you know the zamazamas uh even in the area, you know, immediately around Johannesburg, uh, you know, you see them like when there's a funeral of a Zama Zama, like a Mm -hmm. major one, uh, you'll see guys, you know, with, with polished AKs, you know, like, and, and, you know, fancy cars and they'll do big processions and have huge parties. And like those people, I mean, to some degree you can call them just pure criminals, but on another level, they're essentially an armed trade group of ad hoc people and they are deeply involved with politics. I mean, those people you know all of these politicians solicit and find gangsters and you know criminal figures and underworld figures and from the highest levels of south african society all the way down and they make links with them you know and very frequently it's hard to tell the difference between you know anc people and pure gangsters like and and so so I, I, that's a long way of saying that like I don't think it's a question of whether in kind of the vast black majority of South Africa, there are going to be militias. I think that militias are very, very much a presence and, um, they're already something that has existed for a long time. It's just, we don't call them that. Um, last little bit that is kind of interesting is that, um, I think a lot of people don't realize how much, uh, you could call it xenophobia. You could call it, I mean, I guess it's not racism because it's intra-racial, but how much like kind of ethnic dislike and dislike of foreigners there is um, running through a lot of South African society. And so um, the MK, um, the former uh, ANC military wing groups, uh, those have long been accused of operating along the N3 motorway and targeting um, particularly foreign truck drivers. Um, and they've long been accused of just like pure xenophobic violence against, um, and they're not the only people who do this, but xenophobic violence against, um, you know, migrants from other parts of Southern Africa who are a huge, huge population in South Africa, uh, millions upon millions of people have come there over the years. Uh, and there's a lot of hatred, a lot, and a lot, I should have mentioned this earlier, a lot of the violence in KZN was directed from black people at black foreigners
0: how how like what was the main issue there then?
1: well i mean you know you know it's it's sort of it's sort of like it's sort of like here in the states you know um you have you have this porous border uh you have millions of people crossing all the time they're generally poor um they i mean they're almost always poor uh and they, I mean, straight up, they take jobs and depress wages. I don't, I don't, I mean, I know that's controversial to say, but like when you have unrestricted migration from people who are willing to work for half, it's going to create some resentment. And, um, you know, I, I've spoken to a lot of, you know, I've spoken to a number of white guys who, you know, run farms and stuff who just won't hire South Africans anymore because they, they hire, what, they call them Zim guys. Zim guys, they'll work for so hard. Uh, and like th- those guys, Like, they're just like, we won't hire South Africans because why on earth would we? We can get this Zimbabwean who's fleeing desperate poverty, who we can get to work 12 hours a day for, you know, a half to a third of, I might be overstating the difference, but for for significantly less than a South African worker would work for. And um, you have a basic problem in South Africa. There's too many people and too few places to live. Uh, And I mean that on a basic level of like, there are... To some degree, there's not enough open space for people to literally put a shack on, right? Which is, uh, we can go into that too. But is the other great defining South African political question of how to, how and whether or not to redistribute land, and and you add in anywhere from ten to I don't know twenty million. Uh, it's hard to get an estimate. Some people have very very high estimates of how many people have flooded across the border over the recent decades, um, and that makes that problem much worse um, and it makes competition for literally just like a place to have a home and like get a little mealy meal and eat your dinner at night like it does intensify a feeling of competition um, and uh as far as the xenophobic violence in in kzn in this recent bout um you know the government pointed to this in its initial, kind of, kind of take on the violence when that when it accused, it accused basically Zuma of of sparking a, an, a quote unquote ethnic mobilization, um, and I think, at least from what I have been able to tell, and perhaps somebody who's listening to this will know better than I do, but. As far as I can tell, this wasn't some kind of organised pogrom. It was more street-level animosities playing out uh, in an ad hoc way. Uh, That impression that I have, though, may turn out to be wrong. It may turn out that there were organised pogroms, and it would not surprise me in the slightest. Um, That wouldn't be unheard of at all in South Africa.
0: So going forward then, what do you think is the most likely scenario right now? Do you think this is going to devolve into more violence, maybe even a civil war. I don't know. Um, Where do you see this heading right now?
1: You know, a lot of black radicals who I have spoken to would make the point that South Africa, at least for black people, is already in a civil war. Uh, It's just, it's it's a civil war that takes place between so many actors and with so many opaque motivations that, you know, it's hard for particularly outside of observers to get a handle on or name. Um, So, I mean, that's, that's a kind of sophist interpretation, but like, I, I think it's important for people to remember that South Africa is already incredibly violent and that this, this was, this was a massive, you know, massive burst of particularly property damage and, and, and organized, uh, you know, maybe it was sabotage. Maybe it was something a little more complicated. But you know, organized violence on on some level. But people die in great numbers in South Africa every year. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people die in South African violence all the time. Um, and when you ask if there's going to be a civil war, my first my first kind of reaction to that, which I don't want to go too far with, but I almost was thinking like you almost wish that the conditions for a civil war existed in South Africa, because at least then there would be some kind of way of imagining a path out of the chaos that it is in. Um, It would be possible to kind of identify discrete power bases and discrete entities that could theoretically gain control of of the chaos that this country is devolving into. Um, and that's not present. Um, and obviously I don't really want a civil war, but like the kind of organized, discrete structures that could credibly organize themselves in opposition to each other to make a the kind of thing that you know a Westerner would think of as a civil war isn't really there. Um, what is there is a power struggle Within the ANC, um, between the clique that has coalesced around Ramaphosa, um, who, you know, will continue to suggest that the next steps forward are, you know, keep these corruption inquiries going, keep building good governance structures. Uh, I think South Africa still needs to renegotiate a deal with the IMF, you know, keep attracting foreign investment and, and kind of move forward with the same... More or less the same neoliberal model that has existed both in South Africa and, you know, basically been foisted on the entire world for the last very long time. Hmm. Um, as far as the opposition to that, the closest thing to something that you could put a name to is this this uh, radical economic transformation uh, faction of the ANC and it it's honestly incredibly depressing it's incredibly depressing to me because the stated goals of the ret faction are things that actually i think on some level could save south africa um, south africa is a place that you know i mean i said this to you before but the these are problems that were created by the fact that the revolution didn't get finished there um and anywhere where you have a revolution that doesn't achieve it's kind of the, the aims that sparked it, you have this lingering kind of political disease that kind of infects a society. And, you know, from America where it's like, you have a revolution to build, you know, democratic political quality, but you don't give it to black people, you know, that has infected our country for 300 years, 200, 250 years, whatever. Um, you know, in Ireland, you know, you're supposed to build an like, an Ireland that was United, Gaelic, free and socialist. Well, to some degree, none of that happened. Uh, and Ireland's been dealing with the consequences and been dealing with violence and upheaval ever since. Um, and South Africa, uh, you know, the promise was not, hey, we're going to have a democracy where black people... Control, for example, you know, 23 percent of the value of the Johannesburg Stock Exchange and where 75 percent, if not more, of the land is still owned by whites and where great numbers of people who committed brutal crimes and oppressed the country for almost a century, uh, you know, get off scot-free. Like that was not the plan. And as much as, you know, 1994 is this moment of like great hope and, and optimism and, and excitement, like I think the average South African has experienced something where they're almost as excluded from the South African economy. Many people are uh, as they were during apartheid um, and they are they have seen a class of often quite corrupt people emerge and become incredibly wealthy by leveraging political connections. And they've seen, you know, essentially a white class of billionaires and, you know, a gang surrounding um the area of Stellenbosch uh, uh, in the Cape, you know, remain the billionaires and remain, you know, sort of the richest people in South Africa. Um, And so what the RET faction is proposing is, you know, things like renationalizing sold off state industries, uh, creating, uh, making the state into, you know, the employer of last resort, uh, creating possibly a universal basic, in- basic income, uh, leveraging the power of the state to improve the healthcare, things like this, right? That's, that's their stated goal. And something like that accomplishment of the redistributive aims of the South African revolution would probably be a way to get out of all of this, if it was possible. The problem is that the people who are pushing that are, I mean fucking buffoons and they're fucking corrupt. And they're, I mean, they're gangsters. And, um, I mean, we didn't even go into to why Zuma (laughs) is in prison in the first place, but, uh, the, the short version of it is that he basically gave away the state to this family of, you know, former like computer shop owners, uh, named the Guptas who are now, uh, you know, living comfortably in Dubai, uh, and gave away the state in a degree that's almost, I think, unimaginable to many people uh, who think of South Africa as a, you know, a, a modern major democracy. Which
0: when you say gave away the state, what do you mean by
1: that? <laughs> so I'll give you examples. Uh, so Zuma's son, at one point, Zuma's son brought in a deputy finance minister and said, "Okay, if you want, we will pay you x number of hundreds of millions of dollars, and you." Take over the finance ministry, uh, but you got to play ball with us. And the Gupta's, this again, you know, this this family that rose to absolutely sudden wealth, like they're Indian, which helped to um, has done nothing for um, sort of racial relations in South Africa or the the image people have of Indians in South Africa, which is unfortunate. Uh, but the Guptas are in that meeting. The Guptas are there handing away the finance ministry. Of a major international power. I mean, you know, one of the biggest powers in Africa, uh, the Gupta's. The Gupta's. One of the things they did was um, they forced the South African State Airline to cancel uh, an air route to, I think, Mumbai, uh, because they owned a competing, like, shitty airline, and they um, they didn't they didn't want uh, South African Airlines like competing with their customers, so they would just do stuff like that, like like levers of power over the state. That went from the absolutely minor like questions of how to run a like a not very good airline to the highest, highest functionings of an international market economy. Um and you know, and they reached, you know, it wasn't just Zuma. It was not by any means just Zuma. And so um, like Ace Mahashule, who was well, is currently is currently the secretary general of the ANC. His son had a sinecure job with the Gupta's, um, and he's you know he's closely linked with Zuma, and he's probably going to get expelled. But this rot went very deep. Um, uh, the extremely extremely well respected and uh, kind of much beloved by the international community former finance minister uh, Nene. Uh, He's somebody who is so beloved by international markets that you'll see, like, when it it was proposed that he was going to come back to the finance ministry, the South African rand shot up in value. Um, And then, like, three months into... uh, I'm not sure how many months, but a very short time into his tenure as finance minister under Ramaphosa, not Zuma, uh, it emerged that he had met with the Guptas, and he was out, you know, almost instantly. Um, And their corruption of the state... You know, it's it taken forever, forever to piece apart. And that's that's a lot of what this this um, kind of commission that eventually led to Zuma's arrest is investigating. Um, but I illustrate this because, unfortunately, the radical economic uh, transformation click. Uh, which presents itself as these tribunes of the people. And they're going to, you know, they're going to redistribute wealth and they're going to reorient the state towards common people. And they're going to, you know, to some degree, save South Africa. I mean, these people are not going to do that. They don't give a flying fuck about the average South African, at least on the evidence of what they have done. Mm -hmm. And it's really unfortunate because it's co-opted what could be an actual political mobilization for re- redistributive policies. It's it's made everybody who pushes those look like a radical economic transformation uh, buffoon. And, um, you know, to give a really good example that I think people who are kind of interested in the, the kind of nitty gritty details of international policy and, and dark dealings and stuff, um, you know, Zuma often portrays himself, as do many of the kind of self-appointed tribunes of the South African common people, he often portrays himself as this kind of crusader against, quote unquote, white monopoly capital. Right. And and so that, you know, and that's that's a phrase that's directed at the legacy, legacy rich families of, you know, the apartheid era, like like uh, the Oppenheimers who were involved in De Beers and, you know, mining magnates and things like that. Right. But so the way that white monopoly monopoly capital became a phrase of like particular salience and like intense political division in South Africa is in part, not entirely, but in part because the Guptas hired a, um, a British, which you probably know about these people, a British PR firm called Bell Pottinger mm. uh, to, I mean, it's almost unbelievable. They hired them to fan black rage against white monopoly capital as a way of buttressing Zuma's portrayal of himself as a tribune of the people and ensuring that the Guptas and Zuma and that gang of absolutely corrupt, nefarious, I mean, I, I mean, I, I don't like to call them buffoons because they're not, they're too smart to be buffoons. They, they, they're, they're very good at what they do, but what they do is destroy a state and rob a people. And Bell Pottinger did this. I mean, they pushed this, these, these, absolutely wealthy guys from London are out there pushing like black rage on the internet against white monopoly capital. And this is what I'm trying to illustrate. It's like you get these people who are saying good stuff in fear, you know, who are saying these things about how they want to help the South African people. But if you look at actually what they do, it's almost unbelievably nefarious, you know, and like the stuff that these people touch is inevitably destroyed. Um, I mean, Bell Pottinger was destroyed by its association with the Guptas, you know, this venerable firm. Um, but as far as consequences within South Africa, <laughs> they have not emerged. Uh, to Ramaphosa's credit, and I know I talk bad about, about him a lot, I'm not a fan, but to his credit, he has pushed the anti-corruption thing really hard. And he is I know I said before that he is a figure who's engaged in this kind of like weird, soft trafficking in in party influence to make himself fabulously wealthy. And he is one of the wealthiest men in South Africa. Um, But he has pushed the corruption stuff hard. And I think it was a surprise to many that he did, that the constitutional court felt that it was in a position to have Zuma arrested. I think it was a surprise to many that Zuma allowed himself to be arrested. Um, and I don't think he would have done so if it hadn't been for his ex-wife, who narrowly lost the um, last party competition to gain the ANC presidency, and who's a like a very strong, perhaps stronger-willed and and more effective politician, even than Zuma in some ways. Um, but you know, this faction, this faction has no legitimacy except for this kind of almost you know, African, you know, people, people would always describe it, you know, cause it's America and we can only think about America, this kind of Trumpian, Trumpian, like just unconditional loyalty that Zuma inspires in some people mm. outside of that, his faction in the ANC is essentially, is essentially without power and it's essentially without any kind of legitimacy. And that's really unfortunate because the rest of the ANC, the kind of more proper side that is asserting itself now against the Zuma faction, also lacks a lot of legitimacy, particularly among the poor and more radical um, populace. Uh, and so it's really hard to say where this could go, because there isn't someone who who's equipped to, to lead or unite the country.
0: Yeah, it doesn't sound like it's going to a, a very good place. Um, is there anything else you think we should mention uh, before we wrap this one up, mate?
1: I just want people... when they think of South Africa, um, to kind of, honestly, I mean, it's a funny thing, but I I kind of want people to remember that, like, there is something in this liberation movement project that could have been really, really cool. And it could have, like, the, the vision behind it was really amazing, but it's not the vision that they put forth, you know, kind of in the story that we read in our you know, school books and things like that, of this kind of happy, everybody's fine, we'd have democracy now. And I think the real lesson is that, you know, some people who needed to feel economic and and perhaps even, you know, prison pain in order to heal this country didn't. And that is going to have to happen, whether people don't like to hear it, but it's going to have to happen. And there's going to have to be some scores settled that are still lingering if this is going to work out.
0: Yeah, man, definitely. I hope they do work it out. Um, it's a very fragile situation by the sound of it. Um, where can people find you online, mate, if they want to read your work, particularly on South Africa and, and elsewhere?
1: Well, so particularly on South Africa, you can check out um, – uh, I'm a contributing editor at Harper's, and um, you can look me up, James Pogue, South Africa Harper's. Uh, I got a long piece on there that was uh, backed by the Pulitzer Center. Um I think it was pretty good. Check it out. Uh, otherwise, um, yeah, you can check me out on Twitter. I'm James Pogue, uh, J Henson Pogue uh, is my handle. Um, and yeah, I got another piece coming out uh, hopefully pretty soon. That's kind of wild about um, a jujitsu militia leader who is taking over the county uh, government uh, of an area in Northern California and trying to spark a rural rebellion. So kind of something weird way uh should be fun and so yeah check that out when it comes out
0: definitely check out chosen country james's book very good yeah do that buy it (laughs) (laughs) all right man thanks very much mate appreciate that
1: man pleasure as always take it
0: easy was James Pogue speaking about the clashes in South Africa. Definitely check out James's work, especially his book, Chosen Country. It's absolutely brilliant. Really, really good work. If you want Popular Front to keep growing, want us to keep moving, please consider supporting us at patreon.com popularfront or you can go to popularfront.co support. Thank you to our sponsors in this episode. They are Oracle Coffee Shop in Portland, Oregon, USA. They're an independent coffee business selling only fair trade products. See them at 3875 Southwest Bond Avenue 97239. The episode is also sponsored by Core cool House, a pair of independent coffee shops in Philadelphia, USA, one in South, one in West. Find them on socials at Grindcore cool House. Stop in, uh, tell them Popular Front sent you. The episode is also sponsored by Propagandopolis, an outlet selling and writing about historical conflict propaganda from around the world. Buy prints at propagandopolis.com. Use the promo code popularfront10 for 10% off. Also, check out the series we're doing with them. There's a special line of Popular Front prints that is at propagandopolis.com. P-R-O-P-A-G-A dot com. you'll see it on the top of the header on the banner image of the website there's a section all for the popular front prints this episode is mixed and mastered by splicing block definitely check them out just search for splicing block podcasts thank you very much to them If you want to follow us on socials, uh, go to YouTube, youtube.com slash popularfront. The Instagram is instagram.com slash popular.front or the backup is popularfront underscore. Twitter, twitter.com slash popularfrontco. Uh, And again, the website www.popularfront.co. If you want to support us, if you want bonus episodes, all of that, go to patreon.com slash popular front thank you very much to the higher tier patreons they are doye travis tom Petri, james leons kate ellen dan ross thumper lisa milgram lapita valenz bradley davies brendan crave pete hesher rx a nickel Travis Lieberman, Cherry, Ben Marshall, Dallas Dunn, LD50Seattle, MJ, Meredith Waters, Adam H., Larson8669, Carante, Bjorn Kirsten, Diamondstein, Jacob, Michael O'Connor, Zach Packard, Todd Cravens, Alexander, Nicholas Butter, Ron Swanson, JD, Jav, Ian Froese, James Colley, Tynan Daly, Michael Akakan, Ethan Fitz Madrid Ed Coulthard Clayton Taylor Mike Barone Ben Liam Williams Chris Cusimano Degenerate Zero Alpha Giorgio Arani D.R. Trey Nance Amy R. Rubicon Frank Austin Amelia Mee Nawaiz, Christina Rivetti Freya Northman Ali Hunter Moody al Rashid, Bill Wilson Andrew Hurley Vida Provost Brian McLaughlin Tom Lochrin, Young Wasabi, Tony Bin, Adam Bergsnyder, J. L., Stephen Davila, Anthony Cabarick, Dan Dunham, The Greg, Chad Walker, Diana Govinek, Lawrence Abrahams, Peter McCormick, Axel Iverson, Christopher Martin, Ryan Sandercock and Maurice Zumbul. Thank you all so much. If you want to support us again, go to Patreon.com/popularfront music in this episode as always the intro was by home and the outro was by sam black check his music out at samblackpf.com